Our scripture this morning will come from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and we will continue in chapter 10 at verse 32. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We will continue on chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My preaching professor was a man named Tom Long. And he always taught us an important definition of preaching. He would say preaching is God's word for these people on this day. I believe God has a word for us as a family of faith. I believe God has a word for us as a nation in the book of Hebrews today. And so I just want to pray for our minds and our ears to be open to hear God's word from the book of Hebrews this morning. Oh Lord Jesus, would you make our ears attentive? Would you help us shema? Would you help us listen? And in listening, move toward obedience and surrender. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The people to whom the book of Hebrews was written are in a time of great testing. A description of their testing was read earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And the writer goes on to detail what some of this testing looked like. The testing included public criticism, violence in their community, loss of property. This time of testing, the writer of Hebrews likens to a time of discipline. And he says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time. And what you can see by reading the letter as a whole is that the testing of this community to which the letter of Hebrews was written leads to temptations in light of all the hardships the community is going through. They are facing the temptation to drift, to drift away from the faith. Hebrews 2 verse 1. Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. They're facing the temptation to lose confidence. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
They are facing the temptation to be so blinded by the pain and difficulty of the present moment that they could miss how God is transforming them through it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. For the moment, all all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The community to which the letter of Hebrews is written is in a time of great testing. And this temptation, this testing has brought them to the brink of giving in to all kinds of temptation. That same preaching professor that I referenced earlier wrote a whole book about Hebrews, and here's how he describes the situation. Tired of walking the walk, many of them are considering taking a walk, leaving the community, and falling away from the faith. The community to which Hebrews is written is facing a test. And so what kind of help does the author give his students for the tests? The answer is surprising. He doesn't put them on a church growth plan. He doesn't say you've got to adopt the latest programmings or get some new technology in the worship room. He describes Jesus. Hebrews 1.1, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Here's the description. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the midst of their testing, which was leading to temptation, the author says, here's all the help I'm going to give you. Jesus Christ, and I will describe him as plainly and as clearly as I possibly can. He drives this message home in in a famous verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. I I memorized it as a kid. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Or as J.B. Phillips put it in his paraphrase, our eyes fixed on Jesus, the source and goal of our faith. You see, when testing leads to temptation, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Tim Keller was preaching a sermon recently. And I think he gave a great reason behind the author of Hebrews' instruction for why fixing our eyes on Jesus is the answer to the test that the community was facing. He writes this. At a Christian camp in Colorado... A woman Bible teacher gave me an illustration that changed my life. She said, if the distance between the earth and sun, 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's how big the galaxy is. And yet the galaxy is nothing 
but a speck of dust virtually in the whole universe. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus Christ holds this universe together with the word of his power, his pinky as it were. Then she asked the question, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? You don't ask that person to be your assistant. You fix your eyes on that person as your savior. You hang on every word that they have to say, eagerly waiting to obey it. You watch their life, eager to emulate it. Like the community to which the letter of Hebrews was written, we too find ourselves in a time of testing. It started with a pandemic, which led to a time of testing economically, led to a time of testing medically, led to a time of testing for how we care for vulnerable populations in our community, like our loved ones living in nursing homes. But the medical crisis has revealed a greater crisis still in our nation, a moral crisis, a moral crisis that was laid bare for our nation and world to see with the death of George Floyd over the past week. A moral crisis that stretches back 400 years in North America. A moral crisis of racial injustice and prejudice that we confess now. We must confess now. We have yet to fully confront. Make no mistake about it. I do believe that God uses all things in this world and moving us to the brink with the medical crisis, I believe has helped us see how truly helpless we are apart from some power outside of us coming in to help us with this test. This test, again, make no mistake about it, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when we substituted our wisdom for God's wisdom. When we sinned and missed the mark of what God had defined as human flourishing. And ever since then, as God created humankind in his own image, people since then, have sought to recreate God in their image and see their fellow human beings as less than created in the image of God. What started off as a medical crisis, make no mistake, led us to a deeper crisis, a moral crisis, brought about by sin in our world. And our testing, too, has led to many temptations. The temptation to not listen well. The temptation to not respond quickly enough. The temptation to respond so quickly that we are not responding thoughtfully. The temptation not to forgive. 
The temptation to not ask for forgiveness. The temptation to turn away and just help somebody else deals with it. The temptation to not have the hard conversations. The temptation to not show up in the difficult places. The temptation to not do the hard work of reconciliation. The temptation to try and fix the problems once again with our own strength and power. And I believe the writer of Hebrews wants to help us with our testing in the same way he helped his community in their time of testing. His word to us is the same word to that original community. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me describe him for you. He is the heir of all things. He holds the universe together by the word of, your, of his power. Fix your eyes on him. And when we turn to the Gospels, we see a little bit more about what the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he said, fix your eyes on Jesus. He might say, fix your eyes on the routine of Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 1. Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. The routine of Jesus was early in the morning to begin with prayer, to set out a pattern of trust and obedience throughout his day. I recently heard two words repeated three times by a friend and fellow pastor. His name is Ed Haywood. He is a pastor at the Tabernacle Church of Norfolk, one of our sister churches in our consortium of churches. And I heard him say the following, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. And then he said something that I will never forget. It's transformed my walk with Jesus Christ. He said, it is the height of arrogance to lead apart from prayer. It's not that I had never prayed before, but I never considered that the Son of God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus prayed. And for all of us to run into our time of testing, thinking that we have the wisdom or we have the power on our own, we must stop. Fix our eyes on the routine of Jesus. Jesus prayed. We can fix our eyes on the reaction of Jesus. You see in Mark chapter 10, you see people trying to prevent others, in this case little children, from getting to Jesus. Here's Jesus' reaction. And they were bringing little children, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The reaction of Jesus is to receive others 
When people said, stay away, Jesus said, bring it on. Jesus received me. And so I must receive all who come to me, all who cross my path. Jesus came to me, so I must go to others. And when people are trying to prevent others from getting to Jesus, when people are trying to prevent others from moving into your life, fix your eyes on Jesus, his reaction. We can also fix our eyes on the emotions of Jesus. In Mark 6, we see the feeding of the 5,000, which is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. And Jesus arrives to uh, this desolate place and there are crowds just pressing in upon him and need uh, just right before him laid bare. And what were his emotions when he sees that need? We read it in Mark 6.34. When he saw a great crowd. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This word compassion, we've talked about it before. It's the Greek word splog chisnomai. And, and we, we, we repeated it together. And I, I said it, it almost means guts that Jesus is moved in the deepest part of his being when, when he sees this crowd that's harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But I'll tell you that I didn't have the guts to go a little further to really draw out the literal definition of this Greek word. It literally means bowels. Bowels. Jesus was moved in his bowels, his intestines, the very deepest part of his body is moved with compassion when he sees the crowd. When you see injustice, when you see people that are harassed, fix your eyes on the emotions of Jesus and be moved in your guts, in the very deepest part of your being. We can also fix our eyes on the table of Jesus. This week, one of the questions that I've gotten over and over again is, what can I do? I think most people are looking for a helpful, practical next step. I drove down to Norfolk this week and sat with my friend, Ed Haywood. I asked him that question. And I would like to sit at Ed's feet this morning and learn from his response. I think people are looking for a sense of what to do. What can I do uh, that would be helpful right now? Uh, we have a longing to, to have some type of appropriate action as a response. What wisdom would you have for us to answer that question? So in Luke chapter 14... Jesus was invited by uh, the Pharisees, the religious authorities of the day, to this household. He was invited by the owner of that house. And he observed them jockeying for position and all of that. Um, prior to him actually going into that household, he healed a man. Um, and then Jesus said to, he said to the homeowner, when you 
when you have these parties, don't invite the people that you know, the people who are part of your, um, your group. Invite the other, the stranger, the, the least, the less, the, the, the lowly, the lame, the last. Invite the, uh, the sojourner, those kinds of people into your home. And what I would say to the people of Williamsburg is that they should invite people that are different from themselves. In this time where it's important to, to, to be able to touch others and have relationship and begin to understand uh, people, you invite folks into your home and, and you give them and you give to them. And that expression demonstrates a concern and a compassion and a love for others. And so that's the kind of uh, culture that we have to cultivate um, in order to battle um, this, uh, this, this, this uh, hatred that we see in our community. We fix our eyes on the table of Jesus we welcome people to our tables as Jesus welcomed people to his table and called us to do the same. You see, Jesus welcomed us. Don't miss that. When we were outside of fellowship with God in our own sin, Jesus welcomed us to his table in fact, he came to where we are to, to bring us to that table, that when we place our faith in him, that we might have restored fellowship with God and feast with him for all eternity at his banquet table. See, all of the things I have mentioned up till now, fixing our eyes on the routine of Jesus or the reaction of Jesus or the emotions of Jesus or even the table of Jesus, this could make Jesus just the tremendous and great example of faith and faithfulness, the kind of person you might ask to assist you with life's difficulties along a tough journey. But Hebrews claims so much more. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, after passing the test that we could not pass on our own, after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is not another prophet pointing to God. He is the God to whom the prophets pointed. We will sing, I lift my eyes up, up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? He does not come to offer us help for the test. He comes to fulfill and complete the test on our behalf. When testing leads to temptation, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, his routine, his reaction, his emotions, and his table. For he welcomed us
to his table. If you have not sat around that table with Jesus, I invite you to place your faith in him now, to be welcomed by him, and to turn and begin welcoming others to your table. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus.